Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Good morning, church. Welcome to week five of our series, What is the Gospel? And I want to begin by reminding us, church, that when we think gospel, we must always think four things. We must think God, man, Christ, and response. And now we know that the, the gospel itself is the good news about Jesus Christ, who Jesus was, who he is, and what he accomplished for us through both his life and his death, and, and technically Christ is the third link of that four-link chain, God-man-Christ response. But as we've been repeating over the past several weeks, uh, the good news about Jesus Christ will never be received as good news unless we first understand the bad news which precedes it. Thus, we have God and man preceding Christ and response. And so let's just briefly review. Who is God? Several weeks ago, I talked to us Uh, about God. First, God is creator. He made everything, including us. And there is a very important truth that follows necessarily from the fact that God is our creator. And that is that he has creator rights over us. We're created, we're made, and therefore we are owned. And as the one who fashioned us, the one who has given us life, and is the one who presently, even in this very moment, sustains our life, the very breath in our lungs, the very beating of our hearts, as that one, God has authority over us, and he has the inherent right to prescribe how we are to live. So God is creator, but second, God is holy, and that is his most fundamental attribute. God is perfectly holy, which means that there is no sin in God and that God cannot sin. And further, God cannot look upon sin. He can't look upon our sin. He can't approve of it. He can't look past it. He cannot tolerate it. To state it another but equally true way, God hates sin. He hates our sin because first and foremost, we sin against him. And being comprehensively and eternally holy, God's wrath His righteous wrath is provoked against our sin. And it seems counterintuitive for us today to say that God would hate anything. After all, God is a God of love. And hate is a terrible four-letter word in our culture. But we must see, we must recognize that at least according to the Bible, not every sense of that word is a detestable one. If we were to leave church today and walk down PCH, um, and if you watched as a young child was run down and killed by a hit-and-run driver, how would you feel? You'd be furious. Um, You would hate that heinous, evil act, and your sense of indignation would be provoked uh, internally. Let's make it personal. Imagine it was your child that you saw run down. You see, even as fallen, sinful people, there is still yet a part of us being created in God's image that cries out for justice in the face of injustice and that roars against evil and calamity when we see it. But imagine God's reaction at the sight of such things, being perfectly holy. When he sees sin, he hates it. We must see that that's not the case because God is bad, but because God is good. Third, and finally, God 
is righteous. And what that means is that God's character compels him to uphold what is right and to vindicate what is not. And because God is righteous, he must punish sin, including our sin. But God God cannot not punish sin. He can't just kind of sweep our sins under the rug. To do that kind of a thing would be to act in contradiction to his own character. It would be a denial of his holiness. It would be an abrogation of his righteousness. And so what we need to see at the beginning of the gospel is that, that God's holiness and righteousness are ultimately a function of his goodness. And it's God's goodness that presents a profound and perilous problem for us as his created people. Because what does a good God do with sinful people like us? And this leads us from God to man in God-man-Christ response. As Pastor Andrew pointed out two weeks ago, man is sinful. We exist and persist in a state of sinfulness. And out of that sinfulness, we commit our sins. And Andrew took us to Genesis 3 and Romans 5. And we saw that our first father, Adam, committed cosmic treason and rejected God's creator authority over him. Adam sinned. He rebelled against God, effectively telling God, you are not my Lord. I am my own sovereign. And every single human since Adam has in their sinfulness, in our sinfulness, likewise raised their fist to God. So we are guilty as a human race, according to scripture, individually and also corporately of betraying the cosmic crown and trying to usurp it for ourselves. In fact, This sinfulness is so pervasive, uh, if you look to Romans 1, that the further a given culture slides away from God into depravity, the more that it will insist that God does not even exist. So we're all guilty of saying to God, you're not the boss of me. As a matter of fact, I'm the boss of you. You will not tell me how to be. I will tell you how to be. And in a spirit of rebellion, we the creatures by nature who are created in his image, refashion him in an image that is maximally accommodating to us. In our sinfulness and our sins have consequences in this life. Division, suffering, death, and ultimately, according to Jesus, judgment in hell. We ask, how could a good God send anyone to hell? And the short answer is because our treason is against him. And he gave us life. And the severity of a just punishment is not only determined by the nature of the crime, but also and especially by against whom the crime is committed. If I were to go home today after church and walk up on my front porch and and smash a bug, you wouldn't be terribly bothered by that. If I were to go home and smash one of my dogs, you would and should be bothered by that. You'd probably insist that I should suffer some consequences and certainly go through some kind of psychological rehabilitation. But if, however, I were to go home and smash one of my children, you would, de- you would demand, rightly, a harsh punishment that fits that heinous crime, that objective evil. In each case, I'm theoretically guilty of smashing a life, but the nature of the life being smashed determines the severity of the smashing. It determines the degree of the evil. In each case, a life is taken, but the life that is taken, the nature of that life, determines the degree of the evil committed Against it, we have first and foremost, as created people, sinned against an eternally holy, perfect, good, benevolent, loving, and generous God, the very author and giver and sustainer of our life. 
And three weeks ago, we looked to the Old Testament where God disclosed himself. And he said that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Is that good? Yes. But he can't just arbitrarily forgive our sin because that would violate, it would undermine his holiness and his righteousness, which is why God also says in that same moment that he will by no means clear the guilty. And so in Scripture, we see God and man juxtaposed. We see God is creator. We are not. God is holy. We are not. God is righteous, and we are not. And as Pastor Andrew has reiterated over the past two weeks, Scripture says the wages of sin is death. And wages are something that we earn. Our sin earns something for us. It earns death and judgment. And again, according to Jesus himself, ultimately, hell. This is bad news, right? Is this not bad news? But the verse doesn't end there. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And let's rehearse again. Why is Christ a gift for us? Because we don't deserve him. Because we can't compel him. Because because Christ is the only solution to the problem that we face. Standing rightly under God's judgment. And because Christ is the only way. He's the only way that God can simultaneously forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. And yet by no means clear the guilty. God, man, Christ. Because Christ became the guilty party for us. And that is where the good news begins. You see, God's God's righteous justice demands that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for sin. But a sinful human could never pay for other sinful humans. But as we've rehearsed, a sinless human could. And a sinless human did. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And we look to scripture and we look to the gospel and we see that in his humanity, Jesus paid the full penalty for our sin. And in his divinity, Jesus bore the full weight of God's wrath against our sin as only God could bear it. And this is why scripture says that Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. That he alone reconciles at the cross God's mercy with God's righteousness. Jesus alone makes it possible for God to say what he did to Moses at Sinai when he revealed his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. God, man, Christ, response. You see, the gospel demands a response. The first words we have of Jesus in Mark's gospel are these. The good news of Jesus begins with Jesus himself making this declaration. Look at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe 
in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. So at the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus steps onto the scene and he announces the dawn of a new age. He announces the nearness of God's reign. And Jesus, who is himself the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the eternal word who has taken on flesh, has come to be and to bring good news. A euangelion, a gospel. Jesus has come as a heavenly herald. And as Jesus makes his gospel announcement, he gives two commands. Two, to all who would hear him. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And I want us to see something really important in this moment. They're not suggestions. They're not life tips. They're not pointers. They're not guidelines. They're not just statements of fact. They're not compliments. Jesus doesn't show up on the scene and say, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand and you all look so nice. These are commands. They're in the imperative mood in the Greek. Uh, And in issuing these commands, Jesus is demanding an immediate response to the gospel. Repent and believe, Jesus says. And all throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus' apostles reiterating, recapitulating these two commands. All through the book of Acts. Peter and Paul in their gospel sermons call sinners, whether they are Jewish sinners or Gentile sinners, to repentance and faith. So today, as we kind of begin to bring our What is the Gospel series in for a landing, we're considering response in God, man, Christ, response. Church, how do we respond to the gospel? We respond to the gospel in repentance and in faith. So first, we respond to the gospel in repentance, the first command that Jesus gave in Mark 1.15 is the command to repent. If we fast forward to Acts chapter 17, uh, when the Apostle Paul is in Athens, which was the nucleus of Greco-Roman culture, art, philosophy, religion, uh, intellect, even entertainment, uh, as Paul stands on Mars Hill to preach the gospel to a bunch of Athenian philosophers and pagans, Paul declares this, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Church, we must see that the gospel message is a message that demands repentance. And these are not Paul's terms. These are God's terms. The gospel is God's doing, and the gospel message is God's message. We come to God on his terms, not our terms. God alone defines his terms of acceptance, and God commands sinners everywhere to repent. Now, I believe that Scripture is clear that there is genuine repentance, and there is also counterfeit repentance. And I think that genuine repentance is marked by at least three things. Genuine repentance is marked by recognition over sin, sorrow over sin, and turning away from sin. Recognition of sin, sorrow over sin, and turning away from sin. So first I want us to consider the genuine recognition of sin. 
And I can think of no better place to go in the Bible to talk about this than Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance uh, penned by David after he was confronted over his sin by the prophet Nathan. Many of us know this account. And as we know, David uh, seduced Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and he committed adultery with her. But it wasn't kind of just enough for David to experience, to enjoy her sexually. He had to have her as his own. Uh, he, he coveted her. And so he, he had her husband sent to the front lines of military conflict to be killed. And then he took Bathsheba for himself. And David kind of thought that he got away with his sin until what happened? Until Nathan confronted him, right? And when Nathan confronted David, David... Kind of, you know, the, 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 the scales of the self-deception of his sin were removed from his eyes. And, and he recognized not just his sin, but the utter sinfulness, the depravity, the utter inherent deep-seated wickedness of his sin, the sinfulness of his sin. And so um, from a place of brokenness and contrition and repentance, he, he pens Psalm 51. And this is what he writes. He says, have mercy on me. O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And note that he begins by by, by by recalling that, that the only good things come from God, that, it's, that he calls upon God's steadfast love. He calls upon God's abundant mercy. So he speaks of God in good terms, but how does he speak of him, himself? Look at the words he uses. My transgressions, my iniquity, my sin, my transgression, my sin is ever before me. I've, I have sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. A marker of genuine repentance is that we can apprehend our sin and our transgressions uh, relative to how God sees them. You see, we don't define what is right and wrong. God defines what is right and wrong. And what does David say from a place of genuine repentance? I have done what is evil in your sight. So we know the story. Did David repent? Yes. I mean, this psalm is one of the most beautiful expressions of genuine repentance in all of Scripture. But his genuine repentance required, first, his genuine recognition of his sin. And note that his recognition of sin also led him to confess his sin. He confesses it in the account, and he also confesses one step back. He goes from his sin to the deeper root, his sinfulness, and confesses that to the Lord in this psalm. He confesses his guilt, his shame. And his need for a holy God to demonstrate mercy and compassion and love. But second, repentance requires sorrow over sin. Look again at David's words, beginning at verse 7. He cries out to God. He continues, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. The implication being that he doesn't presently hear any joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew, renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me. Restore. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. These are the words of a grieved man. A man overcome with his sense of sin and as a consequence, godly remorse. You see, David could not experience godly sorrow over his sin if he did not first see the utter sinfulness of his sin. In order for David to experience the requisite sorrow over his sin, he first needed to recognize his sin. But the ultimate call to repentance is not only to recognize our sin and to be broken by godly sorrow over our sin, but to turn away from our sin. So third, genuine repentance is evidenced by turning away from sin. And just look at David's very next words. Psalm 51 verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. These statements presuppose that David is no longer walking as a sinner, but that he is walking upright, that he is walking in integrity before God, that he has been restored spiritually, that he is whole, such that he can call other transgressors to repentance with him, that he can teach other transgressors God's ways, that he can call other sinners, as he says, to return to you. You see, David is longing, he's craving to live righteously before God once again. To be as far from his sin as the east is from the west, knowing that only God can thus remove his sin from him. Genuine repentance involves a comprehensive turning away from sin. When Jesus commands us to repent, when the New Testament writers call for repentance as a response to what God has done in Jesus. They use a word in our New Testament, a Greek word, metanoia. It's a compound word, metanoia. And meta is a a Greek preposition. Um, It could mean with, beside, in this case, after. And noia comes from uh, the Greek root where we get the word mind, uh, nous. So, so literally, metanoia, uh, after, mind, it, it literally means the mind afterward. Repentance, metanoia, the mind afterward. We might ask the mind after what? The mind after Christ. Because the person who truly meets Christ is never the same afterward. But I don't want us to misunderstand anything. Repentance isn't something that's just kind of from the neck up. It's not just this exclusively cerebral thing. We've, we've heard of repentance described as having a change of mind, the mind after Christ, and that's true, but it's not just from the neck up. All throughout the Bible, from the Old Testament through the New Testament, the concept of repentance involves the turning of the whole person to God. Repentance involves turning of the mind It involves turning of the emotions. It involves turning of the will. When Jesus calls us to repent, he is issuing a divine subpoena for our thinking, for our feeling, and for our choosing. He calls for the comprehensive turning of our hearts, the very seat and center of our person. Repentance is a call to turn in our head, in our hearts, and in our hands. What we think what we want, what we choose, and what we do. 
So repentance, as it's depicted in Scripture, um, it is a total turning, a total turning, a total turning of our whole selves away from sin, away from the world, and to God through Jesus. Look with me again at Mark chapter 1. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We look through the gospel accounts and we see these, these terms, kingdom of God or kingdom of, of heaven. They're, they're really synonymous, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. And what they refer to as God's reign, his rule. And so why is Jesus saying this? Why is he saying that the kingdom of God has come near, that it's at hand? Because God himself has come in the person of Jesus. And if you fast forward to the end of all four Gospels, particularly Matthew's Gospel, what does the risen Jesus, no longer Jesus the crucified, but Jesus the risen and reigning Christ, what does he say to his disciples at the end of Matthew's Gospel? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means right now, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Right now, that is what Jesus is saying. And there are some things that follow necessarily from that. What is repentance? That is what we're talking about. If Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, then repentance is everything that we've said, but it is also this. It is bending the knee. Repentance is bending the knee. It is swearing your total unmitigated allegiance to Christ who is king. It is bending the knee now to the king of kings and lord of lords who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And repentance is making peace on his terms now so that you will not have to bend the knee later when his terms of peace have passed and only his judgment remains. This is why Paul, when he writes the letter to the Romans, one of the most glorious and, and, and splendid expositions of the gospel, the greatest exposition of the gospel in, in our New Testament, 16 chapters. He spends the first 13 chapters unpacking the glory and the majesty and the grandeur, the greatness of the gospel. 13 chapters. And 14, 15, and 16, Paul talks about how we are to live as Christians in light of the truth, the reality of the gospel. What follows from the gospel in terms of how we are to live as Christians? And as he begins that section of application, in chapter 14, Paul says this in Romans 14, 12. Every one of us should have this memorized. So then, and hear me, those words are a conclusion indicator. When you say, so then, you're going to draw a conclusion on the basis of everything else you've said. He says, so then, on the basis of this gospel which I have declared to you, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. That should be sobering for us. Now we've looked quickly at what repentance is. 
First, repentance is commanded. Second, repentance is a comprehensive turning away from sin and turning to God. And finally, repentance is bending the knee to King Jesus. And genuine repentance is marked by recognition of sin, sorrow over sin, turning away from sin. But as surely as there is a genuine repentance that we are called to as Christians, there are counterfeits. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that godly sorrow, the kind of sorrow that David expressed in Psalm 51, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. You want to have no regrets? No regrets in this life? Ask God to give you godly sorrow. Because godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So the first counterfeit repentance that I want to identify is just merely feeling consequences of sin. Uh, A feeling of dis-ease at the consequence of sin is not the same as repentance. Both Ahab in the Old Testament and Judas in the New Testament felt tremendous dis-ease as a consequence of their sin. They felt something terrible, but neither of them was repentant. You see, it's one thing to be a frightened sinner. It's a whole different thing to be a repentant sinner. The second counterfeit of repentance is is to muster a kind of passionate resolution against sin. We might resolve ourselves against sin for all kinds of reasons, because it's painful or because we see that it might lead to future calamity. Non-believers make resolutions against sins all the time for reasons of self-preservation. They could say, I'm going to resolve myself to stop abusing this substance because it's going to lead to future calamity. But that doesn't mean that they're repentant before God. It's been said, trust not to a passionate resolution. It is raised in a storm, and it will die in a calm. The third counterfeit of repentance is leaving some sins behind. You know, you might leave one sin behind, but exchange it for an even greater sin. Uh, The devil would love for you men to leave uh, the the sins of lust behind uh, so that you might be damned by a greater sin of pride and arrogance before God. A man can move from one sin to another. Uh, He can be traded from one slave master to another, but he remains a sinner and he yet remains a slave. But I suspect, I suspect that this final counterfeit repentance is probably the one that's going to hit closest to home for most of us. And that is coming to church, giving your tithe, singing some songs, taking some notes, and then going home and doing whatever you want for the rest of the week where Jesus is Lord of absolutely nothing. That's counterfeit repentance. Church, we must not be fooled by counterfeits. Rather, we must long and labor for genuine repentance. We must put our sins to death. We must kill our idolatry. We must, we must fix our eyes on, on the things that are above. We must fight the good fight. We must run the race. Amen? 
I love, and I'm just falling in more in greater love with the Puritans and reading the Puritans. And um, one Puritan writer, Thomas Watson, in his little book, it's just a it's just a gold mine, the doctrine of repentance, wrote this. It is better to go with difficulty to heaven than with ease to hell. What would the damned give that they might have a herald sent to them from God to proclaim mercy upon their repentance? What volleys of sighs and groans would they send up to heaven? What floods of tears would their eyes pour forth? But it is now too late. They may keep their tears to lament their folly sooner than to procure pity. Oh, that we would therefore, while we are still on this side of the grave, make our peace with God. Tomorrow may be our dying day. Let this be our repenting day. Now, does repentance mean that we will never again sin? No, of course not. But here's what it does mean. That we will never, ever again live at peace with our sins. If you want to assess the genuineness of your repentance, ask yourself this question. Has my, has my heart attitude toward my sin changed? Do I hate my sin? Do I agonize over it? Do I war against it? Or do I cherish it and secretly defend it, making every rationalization to hold on to it? You see, the former is evidence of genuine repentance. The latter is evidence of counterfeit repentance. The Scottish minister, William Arnault, ministering in the 1800s, drew uh, the distinction this way. He said, the difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that the one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his dreaded sins. Now it'll make one final point on repentance, and I want to make this point just crystal clear. Church, we need to understand that we are not received by God because we repent. We repent because we are graciously and mercifully received by God. How are we received by God? God receives us simply by faith. So second, we respond to the gospel in faith. And when I say that we respond in faith, many of you are going to hear me uh, in a way that I don't intend. And so I want to clarify, I want to explain something up, up front. In our culture today, uh, the word faith has a generally negative connotation. How many of us recognize that? Uh, when people outside the church, and even when some of us in the church hear the word faith, uh, they immediately think something along the lines of the absence of reason. Uh, faith has been negatively caricatured in our culture as a kind of baseless Belief, unwarranted belief, wishful thinking. The most kind of condescending caricatures of faith equate faith with fairy tales. Oh, you believe in that. Like the fairy, like, you know, the tooth fairy and the Easter bunny. Uh, in his book, which we have given you, What is the Gospel? Greg Gilbert says, ask someone on the, on the street to describe faith. And while you might get some respectful sounding words, the heart of the matter will most likely be that faith is belief in the ridiculous against all evidence. But is faith really the belief against all evidence? I don't think so. And I want to just offer for your consideration this, um, that our faith, the Christian faith, is entirely reasonable and consistent 
with the evidence. Uh, in other words, we do not blindly believe. On the contrary, and quite ironically, I have found in my interactions with people outside the church that many, if not most, non-believers blindly dismiss while they accuse us of blindly believing. And I believe that our faith is rational. I believe that it's historical. And I could speak for hours on this subject. And Pastor Andrew could speak for hours on this subject. But for now, I want us to recognize that our faith is built upon a reliable tradition that has been handed down year by year, decade by decade, century by century for the past 2,000 years. The Bibles that you hold in your hands are reliable testimony, reliably transmitted, and reliably translated. In, in the testimony of Scripture, the testimony of that historical record gives us confidence that 2,000 years ago Jesus came, that He lived, that He lived righteously, that He died on a cross to atone for our sins, and that He was raised on the third day. And all the evidence points to an em empty tomb. There is, as I like to say, a resurrection-shaped dent in the historical record. And all the people in the first century who we know were martyred uh, died for what they believe to be true. You say, well, people die for what they believe to be true all the time. People fly planes into buildings and they die for what they believe to be true, even though we know that that's not true. Here's the thing. Nobody dies for what they know to be false. And all those people were in a position to know the truth or falsity of the Christian claims. And they all died for what they knew to be true. And what I want us to see is that not only do we have kind of epistemological justification for our faith, for our belief, but our faith, our confession also has content. And that content is what we are talking about when we talk about responding in faith to the gospel. You see, there is an object of our faith. That is to say that we not only have faith, we have faith in something. Let me be more clear. We not only have faith, we have faith in someone. We have faith in Jesus. And to be precise, the sum and substance of our faith is the person and work of Jesus Christ. But let's unpack this a little bit. What is faith? And what does it mean exactly to respond to the gospel in faith, to have faith in Jesus? Well, in the Bible, faith is simply a constant outlook of trust and dependence towards God. A constant outlook of trust and dependence towards God. Uh, to have faith in Scripture is to consider something true and therefore worthy of trust, worthy of belief. To have faith in one, to have faith in Christ is to entrust oneself to Him in complete confidence, to have complete confidence to believe in Him. And so if you read the Bible, if you understand the Bible, faith is trust. We could also say that faith is belief, but not blind trust or blind belief, rather trust and belief in something that is true, something that actually corresponds to reality. When we hear the good news of the gospel, of what God has done for us through the finished work of His Son Jesus, both in His life and also in His death, we respond to that good news by trusting, by believing in that finished work. But because the words trust and belief can also be mis uh, easily misunderstood or mischaracterized alongside the word faith today, I want for us to think of a different word when we ask the question, what is faith? 
What is faith? Faith is reliance. Faith is reliance. We respond to the gospel in reliance upon Jesus. So faith is belief. Faith is trust. But faith is also reliance. One of the finest examples of this kind of belief, trust, reliance in all of the Bible is Abraham. And how many of you remember several weeks ago uh, when I preached on God's covenant with Abram in Genesis chapter 15? Like five of you, great. So through, through all of God's dealings with, with, with Abram, Abram exhibits faith, uh, trust, belief, reliance in God. And God's interactions with Abram follow this clear and distinct pattern, right? God promises and Abram believes or he relies. Um, and God appears to him four different times, Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22. And first, I'll rehearse this again. God tells Abram, I'm sending you out from your land and from your family. And Abram's like, where are you sending me? And God's like, trust me, I'll lead you. And what does Abram do? He relies on God and he goes. And next, God tells Abram, I'll give you a land. And Abram's like, where are you going to give me a land? And God's like, trust me, I'll show you. And what does Abram do? He relies on God and he continues, he continues on his way. And then God tells Abram, I'll give you a child. And Abram's like, well, when? And God says, trust me, rely on me, just wait. And so what does Abram do? He relies on God and he waits. And finally, God tells Abram, kill your child. Abram's like, what? And God's like, trust me, go up the mountain. And so Abram relies on God. He goes up the mountain. He's ready to do that thing. And then what does God do? As Abram relies on him, God provides a substitute sacrifice so that Abram doesn't need to pay the consequences for sin himself. In each instance, Abram exhibits this quality of trusting God, of taking God at his word, of reliance upon God and God's promises, on God's provision, that God will deliver what God has promised, that God will accomplish, that God will accomplish the thing that Abram needs. And Abram trusts God, he has faith in God, he relies upon God. And if anything makes Abram special in the Bible, it's his response to God's initiative, a response that is consistently characterized by reliance. And that response of reliance sets this pattern for God's people from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Abram is prototypical of the Christian. Just as Abram relies upon God's provisions, so the Christian relies upon God's provision in Christ. We respond to the gospel in reliance upon Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul says what he does about Abram in Romans chapter 4. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he, has been, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, his reliance, as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Every step of the way, 
every circumstances was arrayed against Abram. And from his own human perspective, he had every reason to doubt the promises of God. Yet he did not rely on himself. He did not rely on his own understanding. But instead, he relied upon God. Just look again at that last verse. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Fully convinced. God is able. God has promised. That is reliance. Reliance is an expression of dependence and trust. When we respond to the gospel and look to Jesus and say, I am relying upon you, Jesus, we say, I am depending upon you, Jesus. I am contingent. My eternal welfare is contingent not upon me, but upon you. I am depending on you, Jesus. When we say, I am relying upon you, Jesus, we say, I am trusting you, Jesus. I'm not trusting myself. I'm not looking to myself. I trust you. So to respond to the gospel is to look to the person and work of Christ in reliance. It is to see our need before a holy and righteous creator, God, and say, I am depending upon you, Jesus. I am trusting in you, Jesus. You are my only way. So if faith is reliance, it follows that we would ask this question. What do we rely upon Jesus for? What do we depend upon him for? What do we trust him for? And here is the answer. In faith, We rely upon Jesus to secure for us a righteous verdict from God the Father, the judge of all, before whom we are all guilty and condemned by our sin. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. What do we trust? What do we rely upon Jesus for? We rely upon him to secure a righteous verdict for us. To have faith in Jesus is to depend upon him to secure and and to deliver to us that. Church, that is our greatest need. Our greatest peril is that we will stand before God one day and be judged for our sin. And our greatest need from God is not that he would somehow give us our best life now but that we would stand before God one day and that we would be delivered out from under the guilty verdict, that we would be pronounced innocent, that we would be declared not guilty. And how do we secure this verdict? Not by pointing to our own lives. As we've seen over the past weeks, our lives persist apart from God's grace and conversion in a state of sinfulness. And our sinfulness gives rise to our sins, and the sinfulness of our sins are detestable to a holy God. And as a function of His holiness and righteousness, He can't dismiss them. He he has to punish them. I remember the first time I got a speeding ticket. How many of you remember that time? I was driving like 45 miles per hour down Prospect, you know, right past Paris Middle School in Redondo. And it turns out that that particular moment, that day, the effective speed limit was 25, not 35, because I was passing through a school zone during school hours. 
So I was effectively 20 miles per hour over the speed limit. So I get pulled off, pulled over. The officer asked me if I knew I was pulled over. You know, I, I pleaded ignorance. And actually, I really didn't realize why I was pulled over. So I pleaded ignorance. So he talks me through it. He had me on radar. I was guilty. So in that moment, what was I to say? Would it do me any good to kind of point to the rest of my existence as an upstanding motorist? Well, officer, you know, I haven't violated the speed limit the last 999 times I drove this way. Therefore, I should be innocent this time. Would it have done me any good to say something like that? Like, what do the last 999 trips down that street have to do with this trip where I'm clearly guilty? If you guys were to leave church and get cited for running a stop sign, you wouldn't say to the officer, well, look, I've stopped at the previous 10 stop signs, so clearly you should count me innocent of this one. That's absurd. Because just like I was guilty of speeding 45 and a 25, so you would be guilty of running that stop sign. And doing some things right, obeying sometimes, doesn't just cancel out the times that we disobey, that we do sin. Our sins don't cancel out like algebra even though we'd like to believe that that's the case. We can't stand before God one day and point to ourselves and say, see God, I'm innocent, because we're not. Paul, when he begins unpacking the gospel in Romans 3, says, all, I mean, this is a universal indictment. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, who are eagerly relying on him. If we are to escape God's judgment, we need what the great reformer Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. You see, what I've tried to establish is that we can't point to ourselves when we stand before God. We need to point to somebody else. Our greatest need is an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is extra nos, that is apart from me, a righteousness that is imputed to us. Uh, Imputation means that the righteousness of Jesus is counted for me the moment I rely on him, the moment I trust in him. And what Christ does is when I put my trust in him, he, he credits to me, he imputes to me his righteousness. And on the basis of that imputed righteousness, God declares me just right now. So that if I die right now, I go to heaven right now because I have all the righteousness I will ever need to get there, namely the righteousness of Jesus, and I have it right now by trusting him. That is good news. That is good news, church. It is good news that God has made unmitigated, perfect righteousness available to us by faith, by trusting in Jesus. When you trust, when you rely upon Jesus to save you, you become united to him. And this magnificent, glorious, beautiful exchange takes place. His death for your sin, his life for your righteousness. His death for your sin, his life for your righteousness. That is the heart 
of the gospel. That is justification by faith alone. And when we understand that magnificent exchange, we understand that salvation comes only through faith in Jesus. That is why we say, that's why we rehearse, that is why we sing, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'm done now. We can take the lights down. There is one question that remains. Where will you point when you stand before God? So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Where will you point when you stand before God? Will you point to your works? Will you rely on your record? Or will you point to Christ's works, both in his life and in his death, and rely upon him? Today, if you're here and you don't know him, I want to tell you that he is calling for your response. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. If you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I want to urge you to respond to him now, to come to him now, to humble yourself now, to bend the knee now, to repent and believe now, to receive forgiveness and cleansing now. And so if that is you, if God has turned your heart toward him this morning, I just want to ask you while everybody's heads are bowed to respond in faith just by raising your hand and acknowledging him. Is there anybody here this morning that wants to just pray a prayer of response to God's gracious initiative? I see a hand over there. See that hand over there. See that hand over there. Wonderful. If that's you, just, just pray this prayer of response with me. Jesus, I know that I can't save myself. And I know you have promised to save those who repent and put their faith in you alone. I trust you to forgive my sins and give me eternal life. I repent now and turn to you fully. Thank you for dying in my place to make my salvation possible. Thank you for giving me your righteous verdict. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.